Hello, fellow law nerds. Welcome to another episode of Boom Lawyered, a Rewired.News podcast hosted by the legal journalism team that just wants serenity now. <laughs> I'm Imani Gandhi. And I'm Jess Piclo. Rewired.News is dedicated to bringing you the best reproductive rights and social justice news, commentary, and analysis on the web. And the Team Legal Podcast is part of that mission. So a big thank you to our subscribers and a welcome to our new listeners. Jess, I'm tired. Amani, <laughs> why? I mean, everything's exhausting, but why now? Like, what's what's going on? I'm so tired. I'm like, I'm like Leslie Mann and 40 year old virgin. So tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of talking about these quote unquote heartbeat bands. Oh God. I'm tired of explaining that they're bullshit. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of using the term quote unquote heartbeat because these bands aren't actually heartbeat bands because six week embryos don't have heartbeats. They have what's called electrical activity in the fetal pole. (sighs) And so if we say heartbeat band in this episode, listeners, just know that we are adding wildly sarcastic air quotes. Here's me gesticulating wildly (laughs) with air quotes every time heartbeat band comes up. You know, and I'm just tired of explaining that these six-week bans are essentially near-total abortion bans because most people don't know that they're pregnant at six weeks. Yeah, Amani, I'm pretty tired of all of this, too. So many states have introduced these wildly unconstitutional heartbeat bans over the last several months, right? We've got six of them to be exact. Let's count them. We've got Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Ohio. Ohio. And this week, Tennessee, man, what are you doing? Tennessee became the seventh state to try one of these garbage bills, but lawmakers there have taken their shameless effort to try and ban legal abortion to a whole new level. They really have. All of our size already. We're like (laughs) completely and entirely over it, and it's like a minute into the episode. Ugh, okay. So Tennessee has introduced a heartbeat bill. Wild sarcastic quotes, right? And Tennessee's version has no exception for rape or incest. Now that bill stalled in the Senate when conservatives began to question the efficacy of the bill. State Senator Katrina Roberts told CBS News, quote, The pro-life people all agreed that they want to see restrictions on abortion, but they started disagreeing on how to do it. And so rather than pass another doomed-to-fail heartbeat bill, Tennessee went all out and decided to attack one of the primary principles of Roe v. Wade, and that is fetal viability. Tennessee amended its heartbeat ban bill in a way that is going to melt your goddamn mind. It really is, and that's what we're going to talk about this week, something that Amani and I have been concerned about for years, and that's the state's attempt to roll back and redefine fetal viability. In this episode, we're going to explain how Tennessee is trying to redefine fetal viability in a way that not only makes no medical sense, but is designed to directly attack Roe versus Wade. And we're going to explain what makes Tennessee's attempt especially dangerous. We're also going to silence scream for five minutes at the end of this episode. So please, won't you join us? Now, you won't be able to hear it since it's a silent scream, but know that we're doing it and you should too. (laughs) <laughs> uh, 
All right, Amani, let's dig into this. What's this bill all about? Tennessee Republicans are advancing a total abortion ban in the state. Oh, super. Yeah, it's fantastic. This week, the state's Judiciary Committee heard testimony and debated an 11-page amendment to its fetal heartbeat bill that is currently stalled in the legislature. So as Amani mentioned, Tennessee has been trying to pass a heartbeat bill, but that's been floundering a bit. The original bill is HB 77 and is a relatively standard heartbeat bill as far as they go. It would ban abortion as soon as a quote-unquote fetal heartbeat is detected, which, listeners, you should know by now is around (laughs) six weeks pregnancy before most people even know that they are pregnant. Okay. Courts across the country have been striking down these laws, and so Tennessee apparently decided to take a different tack. Lawmakers in the Senate amended HB 77 and actually converted that ban to a near-total abortion ban, an even more near-total abortion ban than the heartbeat bans already are, right? Mm -hmm. So the amended version provides exceptions to allow an abortion only to save the pregnant person's life or to avert, quote, serious risk of substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function. The bill has no exception for rape, and it has no exception for incest. All right, so get this, Imani. The bill also redefines fetal viability as beginning effectively when you register as pregnant on a pregnancy test to conclusively, conclusively (laughs) existing when there is a heartbeat. So when is that? Around six weeks. Six weeks. (laughs) God damn it. HB 77 would now make it a felony to perform an abortion if a pregnancy is viable, which the bill defines as the presence of an intrauterine fetus with a heartbeat. I already can't. Like, can we just can, can we, we just stop not and have a beer? <laughs> can we just not? I mean, this bill is weird, folks. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it's bizarre. So this bill has some really bizarre language about how it is that abortion providers are supposed to determine when a pregnancy is viable. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all of the language because it's an 11 page amendment chock full of horseshit. But essentially, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, am I right or am I right? But essentially, the legislature's factual findings contain a load of nonsense about using HCG determinations. Now, HCG is a hormone that is used as a marker in home pregnancy tests, right? Mm-hmm. Like you pee on a stick and then the thing turns blue or pink or whatever color. You have. I'm not I've never been pregnant, so I don't know. But the stick turns a color and then it's like, oh, you're pregnant. and You're either very happy or like, holy shit, it's wrong. I did the one that you got the two lines. Ah, yes. And then I put that fucker down and then I went for a run and processed. But that's a different story. <laughs> we'll tell we'll tell Jessica's pregnancy stories on another episode of Boom Lawyered. Nobody needs those. <laughs> but so here's the thing. <clears throat> the bill says that the use of HCG to document the presence or absence of cardiac activity is standard medical practice outlined in standard medical tests. Let me repeat that. The bill is saying that the use of this hormone to document the presence or absence of cardiac activity is what doctors always do. It's standard medical practice. I'm making a face. Yeah, I'm making yeah a face. she's making a face. Now, the bill also says that, quote, when a pregnancy is evaluated before the heartbeat is detectable, the accepted medical science within obstetrics 
presumes that the pregnancy is viable when there is an increase in the HCG of at least 66% in a 48-hour period. Hold up. What the hell does that mean, though? (laughs) I don't know. That That was my question, too. And so I asked Dr. Jen Gunter. Some of you may follow her on Twitter as at Dr. Jen Gunter. She's been my go-to for about seven years now when it comes to the science and medicine of pregnancy that I don't understand. And she was kind enough to answer some questions, and she had this to say. And I'm going to quote her in full here. No one uses serum beta HCG to determine if a pregnancy is viable. The standard of care is ultrasound. Occasionally, when ultrasounds are not definitive, we use an HCG value to help. However, normal pregnancies can have a less than 66% rise in beta HCG, and abnormal pregnancies can have a greater rise. For example, ectopic pregnancies. Using beta-HCG to determine viability of pregnancy is medically incorrect and only an idiot or someone using a textbook from the 1990s would reach that conclusion. Women deserve better than that. So there you have it. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Dr. Jen Gunter knows of what she speaks, and I really want to thank her for taking the time to answer my extremely shouty questions <laughs> on such short notice. I literally was like, this bill is making me lose my mind, Jen! Help! And she's a gem, and you should buy her book, The Vagina Bible, because I'm quoted on the hardback, and that's very exciting. But Jess, like, what the entire, and I cannot stress this enough, fuck is going on? I mean... Yeah, I'm going to stammer here for a second because, first of all, thank you, Dr. Jen, for bringing actual science into this conversation because clearly it is already veered into the level of science fiction, right? And, I mean, basically, Tennessee policymakers have proposed that viability is when a pregnancy can be detected. When you take that pregnancy test is when it's viable, and that's just, that's fucking nuts. Like, yeah. It's nuts from a medical standard. It's nuts from federal Supreme Court standards, which, I mean, we've talked about, right? Viability means a fetus can survive on its own meaningfully outside the womb. That doesn't happen when you pee on a stick. Think about it this way. When you pee on a stick, that's when the pregnancy is detected. And that's when this bill says abortion is banned. So an irregular quote-unquote heartbeat ban bill you don't know you're pregnant at six weeks because that's about two weeks after you're after a missed period. So if you don't know that you're pregnant at six weeks, then you definitely don't know that you're pregnant before you know you're pregnant, which is what a pee stick is supposed to tell you, right? Like you pee on a stick and you say, oh, I'm pregnant. But this bill is saying as soon as you pee on the stick, the pregnancy is already viable. So essentially, like you can't even you'd have to you'd have to get an abortion just to determine whether or not you're pregnant. Which you can't do because let's talk it. Let's let's break this down because, you know, what are the earliest types of abortion that one could access? Medical abortion. How do you make an appointment to have a medical abortion? You have to have a confirmed pregnancy test. I mean, it's common. Amani and I just both threw our hands up and and walked away from the mic, basically. We're like, and so there you have it. You can't get an abortion if you've confirmed a pregnancy test because at that point under this law, it's banned. And the thing is, it's so absurd about it is pro, you know, quote unquote, pro-life people are always talking about these predatory abortionists. And what they're doing now is setting up a situation whereby you have to just go get a Hail Mary abortion if you think you might be pregnant, which is preposterous. 
And something that they, that's another example of, of conservatives sort of telling on themselves, right? Of like, yeah. you hear those stories where they say, they gave her an abortion and she wasn't even pregnant. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's what they want people to do. They want people to just get like, well, I guess maybe abortions. You know what I mean? Like, all right, we're getting diverted. We're getting diverted. Let, we got to talk about the debate because. Yeah, let's talk about the debate. Good God almighty. So Tennessee had two days of debate and five. It started out with five white cis men who testified in support of the bill. I'm sure you're shocked by that, right? I cannot believe that they would have only a bunch of white dudes to come and talk about, you know, the pregnancy and reproductive rights of, you know, I'm just going to trail off and just let you continue. I know. I know. It really is that bad. However, however, the second day, reproductive rights and justice advocates did get to have a say a little bit. Sharice Scott, who is the CEO and founder of Sister Reach, a fantastic reproductive justice organization in Tennessee, got up to testify. And she was there to speak on the impact the bill would have on Tennesseans and specifically on black women. Which, fantastic, right? There's so frequently just a bunch of white dudes talking about, you know, abortion and talking about, oh, abortion is black genocide. And oh, my God, there's so many black babies being aborted. And they just never really talk to black women about our experiences with abortion, about the ways that abortion affects the black community. So hooray, Cherie Scott is out there. She's testifying. Fantastic, right? They caught her mic and escorted her out. Oh, my fucking God. (laughs) They really did that. They really did that. They had Cherise Scott up there testifying about the impact this bill would have. And they got so mad at what she had to say. They cut her mic and escorted her out. Like, here's what she had to say. Quote, you manipulated scripture to align with your colonial and supremacist ideology instead of showing mercy and using the political power of your party to liberate each of us. Boom! Kablam! Kapow! Zing! (laughs) Like, that is exactly it. And that's what I've been saying for so long. White folks are using black bodies to promote these anti-abortion restrictions and they don't care about black people. They don't Mm -hmm. care about black women. They're just using us as weapons. And I find it personally offensive. And it really just makes me want to just jump out a closed window sometimes. Not going to lie. But I'm not going to do that because I need to be here to yell at all the white people who are telling black women what to do with their bodies. But uh, let's let's just let's just move on. So (laughs) the Judiciary Committee has seven Republicans and two Democrats. So the amendment is expected to pass, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. So this testimony was for a, quote, summer study. So the Tennessee legislature isn't even in session right now. What? They're not in session. Like, and states do this all the time, right? They they mm-hmm. call these special legislative sessions in order to ram through anti-abortion restrictions. Texas, that's how HB2 got started because they kept mm-hmm. doing session after session after session because all they care about is controlling the bodies of pregnant people. But that aside, the Tennessee legislature is going to vote on the measure in January 2020, which is when the legislature reconvenes. Okay, so if we're not talking about a vote until 2020, why does this bill matter? Why are we talking about it now? 
because junk science is going to rue the day. It really mm. is. You know, we've been talking about junk science for years on Rewire.news. Um, a couple of our investigative reporters did an entire series on false witnesses. You should mm-hmm. go check that out. Just Google false witnesses, site colon Rewire.news. Legislators incorporate junk science into their legislative findings all the time, and then courts adopt that junk science into their rulings without questioning the basis of the science or the credentials of the people offering up the junk science. And it's, it's just mind-boggling and frustrating. These junk scientists have spent decades creating their own junk science institutes, We're talking like the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is the quote unquote research arm of the Susan B. Anthony list. We're talking the Elliott Institute, which I believe is in Chicago. And essentially these institutes, they create studies and then they peer review one another's studies in order to give the veneer of credibility, right? Because in order to, Mm -hmm. that's what scientists do. They create studies and then they review each other's studies, but usually they're actual scientists, not like, random sociologists who've decided to create an institute and then make up a bunch of science in order to foment more anti-abortion restrictions. And can we just talk about how um, ridiculous and bad faith it is to invoke a summer study on this garbage right now? Because, I mean, look, they are trying to save a bill that is otherwise dead in the water. Tennessee Republicans wanted to pass an extreme abortion ban, and they, for whatever reason, were split within their own party and couldn't get their act together to do it. And so now they're trying to save their hides electorally, and this is what they're doing. They're sort of gumming up the base and getting people all whipped up it's cynical and i'm just it makes me sick and it's the middle of summer who wants to be doing this in the middle of summer don't pretend like you're interested in really studying the issue like you just want to get people whipped up and that's it absolutely absolutely so what's really going on here like what's actually the the impetus behind all this nonsense in the study, right? So they're they're trying to roll back fetal viability in order to undercut Roe. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's part of a two-pronged attack on Roe, right? They're going mm-hmm. to attack the decision itself. That's yep. what a lot of the cases that have been percolating in the lower courts and have been sort of bubbling up to the Supreme Court are about. Just They want to just reverse Roe. Mm-hmm. Full stop. The second prong of this idea of this attack is to undercut the principal holding of Roe, which is that there is a constitutional right to abortion up until viability. And the way that they can undercut that principle is by declaring a pregnancy viable immediately. Right. So as soon as you know you're pregnant, that pregnancy is viable, which is lunacy. It is. It, I mean, we. I consider it their reverse or rewrite strategy, right? Reverse yeah. row or rewrite the meaning of it altogether. We've seen lawmakers pass these kinds of bills and even in places like Alabama and even and in Tennessee say that they know that they are unconstitutional and that they are intentionally trying to attack Roe. But here's why Tennessee's bill is different and why this could be a more stealth attack. So the bill redefines fetal viability up to this point when a pregnancy is detected and, as we said, definitively when a fetal heartbeat um, shows up. And it does so in these lengthy findings of fact. Six pages of the total amendment, which itself is 11 pages. That's almost half. 
So why does this matter, though? Okay, this is important and it's nerdy. I'm going to put up my glasses for this. Yes, sit up straight. According to Gonzalez versus Carhartt, that's the Supreme Court case that upheld the Federal Partial Birth Abortion Act, a restriction that, I'm just going to do my little sidebar here, should have been considered an unconstitutional pre-viability abortion ban. Sidebar done. The Supreme Court said that legislative findings of fact, so what Tennessee is doing here, like those six pages in this Tennessee bill, are to be given considerable deference by the courts. So that basically means that courts are to take lawmakers' findings of fact on their face and not second-guess them, correct? Right, exactly. That's true even if those findings of fact are about matters of scientific uncertainty or matters of great public debate. Like, let's say, when a fetus is viable, for instance. So these findings of fact could be one way to insulate the Tennessee bill from a court declaring it unconstitutional. Now, I think that's unlikely to happen because, you know, I'm going to assume the courts are going to continue to do their job. But the strategy is clear, and I think we need to call it out. I mean, that's pretty optimistic of you to assume that the courts are going to do their job, given the makeup of the courts right now. But that's an aside. <laughs> uh, I know. No, fair. And hold on. So that brief, that that moment of optimism may also be fleeting because, Amani, it does actually get worse. How the fuck could it get worse? <laughs> Seriously. so bad. I know. I'm I'm just going to preemptively apologize for how bad it's about to get, even though I have nothing to do with it. It's just a white it's girl not, thing. It's not your fault. I'm just going to go all goodwill hunting on you. It's not your fault, Jess. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Okay, so so listen to this. Listen to this. Adam McLeod, who's a law professor at Faulkner University in Alabama. He was one of those five men who I mentioned who testified in support of the bill. He said that the law was written specifically to attack Roe's constitutional framework. So he wasn't even shy about it. He said, nope, yep, this is exactly what we plan to do. So do you remember the episode we did on this podcast of what a challenge to Roe would actually look like? I actually do. You know why? Because I literally reread the transcript about <laughs> 20 minutes before we started this because I was like, yeah, we did. We did that episode. And I was like, hey, that's pretty good. We, pre- we nailed that episode. Good job. So if you haven't listened to it, it was just, I think it was August 12th. No, yeah. That was yesterday. August the <laughs> We something? did it yesterday. No. And we did it like, time, know, is, time a is a flat circle. circle. <laughs> we did it a while ago. A it's while a good, ago, it's, yeah. a, it's a great episode. If you haven't listened to it, please go listen to it. If it's been a while, maybe go back and listen to it again because, listeners, that's exactly what is happening here. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you don't have to take my word for it. Listen to Adam McLeod. The Constitution of the United States, specifically the Ninth Amendment, protects rights that are ancient, that have existed in our legal traditions from time immemorial, known as common law rights. These include the right to life, which is known in the common law tradition as an absolute right. The precedent, the most uh, direct precedent for this argument is the court's decision in Gonzalez versus Carhartt where the court affirmed the power of governments, the rights of governments, to protect what it calls the interests of unborn children. Of course, those interests are grounded in rights, natural rights, which children enjoy by virtue of being human. So would it be fair to say that that this bill is trying to present a different kind of case or controversy, as we talk in the Constitution, from the kind of case or controversy we've heard before? Yeah, it's presenting to 
the court, presenting to some court that might hear this argument in the future, uh, a different set of claimants. Right. And the claimant here, of course, uh, who's been invisible up to now, except in Gonzalez versus Carhartt and a couple of other cases, is the unborn human being. This guy is a jackass who is completely ignorant about the history of abortion in this country. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of abortion in this country so you will know just exactly how much of a jackass this guy is, right? So from about the 1600s up until the 1800s, abortion was legal in the United States. It was so legal and so widely practiced that there were advertisements in papers that advertised where you could go to get abortions from pharmacists, homeopaths, midwives. They were even sending shit through the mail. And in the U.S., abortion was legal before quickening. This is something we talked about in the, you know, what a challenge to Roe would look like. So I'm just going to reiterate a little bit. Quickening is the point at which you can actually feel the fetus moving in your womb. And even the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church, which is beating its chest about, oh my God, abortion is so bad, yada, yada, yada. The Catholic Church was absolutely unopposed to abortion at this point. They believed that abortion was acceptable until this concept of insolment. And they also believed that abortion was perfectly fine up until the point of quickening. So he's a jackass in that respect. He doesn't understand the history of abortion in this country. But he's talking about common law, right? And common law usually refers to sort of old-timey law in ancient merry old England, right? And he's a jackass when it comes to that as well. (laughs) So under English common law, abortion was a crime after quickening, right? After the point at which you can feel the fetus moving in the womb. But the seriousness of that crime was vastly different at different times in history. For example, in 1803, there was an English statute that made abortion after quickening a crime that earned the death penalty, but a less serious crime before that. And then in 1837, there was an English law that abolished the significance of quickening and also abandoned the death penalty for abortion, which is interesting considering now that we're in this period of time when legislatures, conservatives, uh, evangelicals are considering death penalty for people who get abortion. So this idea that common law... We've come all the way back. Exactly. Common, the, the idea that common law is driving this current conversation of, on abortion is, is nonsense. In addition, in the 1920s, English law added a quote-unquote get-out clause that stopped abortion from being a crime if it was, quote, done in good faith for the purpose only of preserving the life of the mother. So this change in common law actually recognized one of the features that is really not stressed enough, and that is anti-abortion laws were often intended to protect women from dangerous medical procedures. They were not intended to protect the life of the fetus. Let me repeat that. Anti-abortion laws were intended to protect women. They were not intended to protect the life of the fetus. So this idea that, you know, fetuses are unborn children, that there's natural persons, and that there are enumerated rights in the Ninth Amendment that protect these quote-unquote unborn children, that's nonsense. Common law does not protect quote-unquote unborn children. Common law actually protected women, protected pregnant people. I know, it's bonkers. And anyways, McLeod told lawmakers basically that all of Supreme Court abortion rights jurisprudence can be ignored because he thinks it's wrong, so that's awesome. And you know what? He, there are people on the Supreme Court who agree with him, right? Mm-hmm. Clarence Thomas, he's 
he's champing at the bit to undo all abortion jurisprudence because he think it's just made up judicial activism. So and the cloud is speaking directly to him. He really is. He absolutely is. And 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 considering that this case is aimed at the Supreme Court, the intent is to get it before the Supreme Court. Yep. Clarence Thomas may just be that guy who's like, okay, I, I get to write the opinion undercoming Roe. Hip, hip, hooray. Ho, hey, ho. Okay, that's enough. So, <laughs> so just now what? Like, what's going on? What's going to happen next? Okay, so let's reiterate and reinforce a couple things. We've got six states this year that have passed these extreme bans. Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Ohio. They are all blocked. That's one of the first things that I think we need to remind everybody. These are all blocked. They're all blocked. If Tennessee gets around to passing this one too, it should also be blocked. Why? Because they're all unconstitutional. Super hella unconstitutional. Why? All unconstitutional. You're unconstitutional. You're unconstitutional. Look under your seat. It's unconstitutional under there. Woo! (laughs) So... Missouri has passed an eight-week ban that's set to take effect at the end of the month unless blocked by a court. And remember, Missouri is that state that has 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 this cascading le- legislation. So if the eight-week ban is too severe, they're going to go to the 14-week ban. If that's too severe, they're going to the 18-week ban. If that's too severe, they're going to the 20-week ban. It's like a Russian nesting doll of abortion bans. <laughs> it is. It is. It's a, it's a nesting doll of abortion bans. I love that. So and also we have to remember that Alabama's total abortion ban is still out there. It's currently blocked, but it's out there. And these bills are all slated to take effect in 2020. And thankfully, thus far, the courts have done their jobs and blocked them all. But with about a quarter of the federal appeals court bench now chock full of Trump appointees, it feels like we're headed closer to the point at which one of these courts is going to go rogue and uphold one of these bans. So people are going to want to know what they can do because this feels kind of hopeless, but it's not entirely hopeless. So let's tell people what, what they can do to, to chime in and help. All right. So first thing you can do is donate to Sister Reach. Sister Reach is that repro advocacy organization that Cherise Scott is a part of. And she's the one black woman who tried to tell to testify for black women mm-hmm. and was escorted out of the goddamn proceedings. Um, They support repro autonomy for women and teens of color, including non-binary folks. Great organization. You know, donate to them. Call them up. See if you can help in some way. Also, there's an organization called Health and Free Tennessee. They're an RJ organization as well, and you should support them. You can donate to abortion funds in the South, right? Um, Help uh, abortion funds help pregnant people. Yellowhammer in Alabama, the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund, the Carolina Abortion Fund in the Carolinas, ARC, which is Access Reproductive Care in Georgia, there are also funds in Louisiana and Florida. They need your help, too. Um, yeah, just go to abortionfunds.org, and then literally it says, there's a map. It'll say you can enter in your zip code, and then it'll tell you what funds are near you that may need help. And you should also remember this is critical. Abortion is still legal in every state right now. I'm going to say that again. Abortion is still legal in every state. So that means if you know people who are trying to access abortion care, make sure you know that they can still get it. It also means if you are tweeting or talking on social media about any of these bans, make sure to reiterate that these bans have either been blocked or are not in effect. Because if you tweet stuff like Alabama just banned abortion, 
then people are going to think that they can't get abortions in, in Alabama and it's that's already bad hard for enough. pregnant people. People are scared. Yeah, it's, it's hard enough. People are scared. And frankly, this episode, I'm sure, is not going to help yeah. you feel any less scared. <laughs> and so you're welcome. So, you know, thank you. You're welcome, I guess. Go have a glass of breakfast wine. I'm not sure what to do, but we're going to close this episode now. It's still a rosé day. <laughs> It is absolutely a rosé day. So if you want to continue this conversation, you want to ask Jess or me any questions, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Angry Black Lady. You can follow Jess on Twitter. She's at Hegemommy, H-E-G-E-M-O-M-M-Y. I like how you mix that one up. And you should join our Facebook group. It's poppin'. We've got over a thousand members. You gotta answer the questions. Brad McBeer, Justice Beer Funnel, Brett McRapey guy. There are all kinds of <laughs> nicknames that you can use for Brett Kavanaugh that will help you answer the questions. And this next statement will also answer help you answer the questions. Where are we gonna see you, Jess? What's happening next? We'll see you on the tubes, folks. We will see you on the tubes. Boom Lawyered is created and hosted by Jessica Mason Piclo and Imani Gandhi. This episode was produced by Mark Folletti, who is also our executive producer. And the Rewire.news editor in chief is Jody Jacobson. 